pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, it, we believe you deserve all honor and praise. And God, I pray that our hearts would be attuned to that, that as, as life feels like it's exploding around us, distractions abound, God, we, we want to stay focused on you and your glory and your power and your grace and your mercy and your kindness. God, I, I pray you, you would guard our hearts from the distraction and the drift that happens all the time. And in this moment, God, I pray that you would help our hearts to attune to you and focus on you and your good news and your mercy and grace and kindness. And God, I do pray as we continue to worship by looking at your word, God, I pray it would really be worship. God, protect us from just sitting and listening. I pray we would actively engage worshiping you as we look at your word. God, I pray you'd give us ears to hear what you would say to us. I pray you would help me to teach. And above all of that, God, I pray that you would be glorified because of the way that we've gathered together today. And I pray that all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. In case you don't recognize me, uh, I did have a beard last week. I don't know if y'all noticed that or not. Uh, and I also lost 10 years of my life, apparently. I've, I'm a lot younger um, when I shave. So my name is Fiaz, in case you didn't know that. I'm the lead pastor here at North Florida. Before we continue our study in the book of Psalms, I want to let you guys know about something. Uh, we've been trying to plan about how we as a church are going to engage in the, the mission of Jesus Christ over the Christmas time. We've got several plans that are working, but one of the things that we did is... Um, I forget how long ago we started, but it's probably been two months or more now. We started canvassing this block around our neighborhood to find out ways we could serve. And we were kind of really asking God, hey, what do you want us to do? And one of the things that we discovered, and well, we discovered several things, but one of the things we discovered in that is uh, over here in the Tallahassee Housing Authority, there's a boys and girls club that just got started right as COVID was happening. If you don't know what a boys and girls club is, it's, uh, it's a, a group that works with with young boys and girls to kind of mentor them and bring them along. Um, and so we started trying to find out things that they were doing, ways that we could engage. That, that gives us direct engagement for the, for the young children and teenagers that are in that area. Well, we found out that they're doing a Christmas gift giveaway. So here's what we're gonna be doing. Starting next week for several weeks, we're gonna be collecting gifts for six to 12 year olds, boys and girls, not just boys, boys and girls. Um, if Boys and Girls Club didn't make that stand out, for some reason when I say it, I think we just hear Boys Club, it's Boys and Girls Club. So uh, $10 gifts, ages six to 12, and whatever gifts we, we collect, we're gonna take it over there and let them give it away uh, to those kids and to those families during this Christmas time. We've got several other things in the works but I don't want to spoil the surprise today, so I'm not going to tell you, all right? But uh, just no, look for that email coming out. There'll be tables set up uh, in the coming weeks. I don't want you to be surprised next week when that happens. Okay, so here's what we're doing. We're in the book of Psalms. We're going to jump right into Psalm chapter two today. Now, I don't, I don't want you to worry. We're not going to spend 150 weeks in the book of Psalms, um, at least not from now till whenever we all die. That would take forever. Uh, we're just going to be in Psalm chapter 2. We're only going to do this for several weeks until we start Christmas and then get into the new year. And I'll occasionally be picking back up in the book of Psalms. But let me remind you what's happening in the book of Psalms. It is a, a book of songs and poetry that ancient Israel would write as, as worship to God. It was their response, their response to God being present. It, it's an invitation into relationship and encounter 
encounter with God. And it's, it can be emotionally raw. It can feel weird and awkward. It can be excited and happy or sad and angry. And, and you go with them in every single Psalm through a journey of emotion. And, and this week is no different. So let me give you background of what I think is happening in Psalm chapter two. I think the person that's writing this psalm, he's looking around at all the nations around Israel. Now, if you, don't, if you know much about history, uh, the nation of Israel is, is tucked away in this little area about the size of New Jersey, like it's super tiny, and they were surrounded by enemies. There's Philistines who wants to kill them, and Amorites, and Moabites, and, and Ammonites, and Egyptians, and Babylonians, and Assyrians, and Ninevites, and I think Assyrians and Ninevites are the same thing, so sorry history buffs, but there's all all these people that literally are constantly pressuring the nation of Israel, trying to destroy them and kill them. And, and I think the psalmist is looking around. He's looking at this constant pressure from these enemies. And he also knows we've got God present in our midst, like the real creator God, the God that made everything by speaking. Like this is phenomenal. He holds it all together and he's done huge and awesome miracles. And the nations around us know it. Like, this is insane that they would rebel. Let me tell you why I think he says that. We're not actually starting in Psalm 2. We're actually starting in Joshua chapter 2. Tricked you. This is like a Bible sword drill. If you already turned in Psalm 2, flip back. Keep your finger, or I don't know what you do on a phone. Uh, but flip over to Joshua chapter 2, and let me read this to you. I want you to see that the nations around knew that God was present and knew that God was doing miracles and strong things in their midst because when Joshua and Israel come into the land to get it, they send two spies out, right, to spy out Jericho. You remember this thing? Uh, it's not the 10, 12 men went to spy on Cain and 10 were bad and two were good. This is the story of Rahab. And so she hides the spies and, and then uh, after she hides them, she starts talking to them. And here's what she says in Joshua 2, verse 9, and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. I already know that God has said you get it and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Why does she know this? For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. We, hey, we heard about God and what he did to the Egyptians and how you came to the Red Sea and God split it. We heard about all the plagues. We heard about how he protected you in the wilderness. We've known for 40 years that this land was yours and God had given it to you and God was real and strong and that he was going to defeat us. We've, we've known it. It says this, continuing, and when, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were by, beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og. Don't name your kids Sihon and Og, by the way. Uh, awful kids' names. Whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Why? For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. He, here's what's happening here. You, you've got the spies showing up to Jericho and here's what they find out. Everyone in the land already knows that God is real and big and strong. And they know that he's decided that Israel gets the land. And they know that he does huge, crazy miracles against those who don't agree to follow God and do what he says and give Israel the land. They, they saw what he did to Egypt. They saw what happened when these two kings attacked. They know that God is real big and that he's on Israel's side. They know that. So with that in mind, let's start Psalm chapter 2. Look at, look at verse 1. 
the psalmist asks this, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Like the, the, these first two verses here, they, they paint this picture of this, this rebellion that's happening among the nations. He, he says this, that they've, they've, uh, they, they rage, that idea of rage, that they're almost, they're not moaning, but they're like screaming. They're like furious. It's like this tumult, this uproar that's happened. They're like, why are the nations in such an uproar against God? What, what, why are they, he says this, the king, they, they plot in vain. The idea is that they're whispering in secret and it's in vain. Let me tell you why it's in vain. Because you can't hide secrets from God. I don't know if you knew that. This is a newsflash. If God is real and he knows everything and he knows what your heart thinks, how are you going to plot secretly against him? I just need you to think about the stupidity of this entire plan, right? Like they're, they're, uh, they're in an uproar about God. They're, they're plotting secretly on how to get away Away from his rule. Look at what else it says there. It says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. That idea set themselves. Is they've, they've dug their feet in and they've put their army on the field and they're saying, here's our plan. We're digging our heels in. He doesn't get to come here. I like, think about this. Here, here's what this guy is seeing. He's looking around and he sees this, these nations and they don't want to submit to God. They don't want to obey God. They're planning to throw him off. They, they totally reject everything. They're an absolute and utter rebellion against God. Now, when you read that, and, and don't forget this, I, I want you to see who they say it's against at the end of verse two, against the Lord and against his anointed. That's against God and Jesus, all right? Now, when you read that, let me ask you, do you think it's true that all the nations are in utter rebellion against God? Like, when I read that, I, I had this question pop in my head. Like, do I think, so I started putting nations in the place. I, I'm actually going to assume you agree with me here. Uh, do you believe that the nations of the Middle East are in rebellion against Jesus as king? Do, do you believe that China is a rebellion against Jesus as king. Listen, do you believe that Europe is in rebellion against Jesus as king and Russia rebellion against Jesus? I think most of us would say, yes, man, we, they, they are totally in rebellion against Jesus as king. But, but what if I change that? I wonder if you would agree that the United States is in rebellion against Jesus as king. Or does that one feel off limits? Now, I actually figured most of you would still say yes, but I'm not done. Because <laughs> it's not just the countries, it's their, their, their leaders and their political parties. Do you believe that the Democratic Party is in rebellion against Jesus as king? Do you believe that the Republicans are in rebellion against Jesus as king? Listen, he, here's what this, these verses are saying that every nation and every country and every political party is in rebellion against Jesus. That includes the Democrats and the Republicans. They're all part of this rebellion. Like it or not, that, that's the reality of that. And, and here's why I'm going to suggest that they actually are in rebellion against Jesus. Here's what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that there are no Christians in these groups. There's tons of Christians in China and Russia and Europe and the Middle East who are not in rebellion against Jesus. 
That there's, there's followers of Jesus that are in all levels of government in the United States who are not in rebellion against Jesus. But I'm going to suggest to you that the overall bent of the country and the political leaders is in rebellion against Jesus. And here's why I think that. If there actually is a king that is in charge, then when you go to make decisions and policies and things like that, the ultimate question that you are asking is, what does the king want? Well, what does he want? What does he say? He gets to decide how we should act and what's right and what's wrong. If he's king, he's in charge. And I do not hear from nations and leaders and political parties, what does King Jesus want? That's not the question that our politicians and leaders are asking. They're asking, what do the people want? They're asking, what do I want? They're asking, how do I push my agenda or my constituents' agenda? Listen, if there is a king that is in charge and if his name is Jesus, then the agenda we don't put, push is the agenda of the people. The agenda we push is the agenda of the king. Listen, it's just as rebellious to say we don't want you as, as it is for us to say we don't care what you think. We do what we want. And if what you think agrees with what we think, then we're all on board for it. But if what you think doesn't agree with what we think, we reject it and ignore it and pretend like it's not clear. Jesus is not stupid. He's wise and he's smart. He actually knows how to communicate clearly. And he said very clearly what he wants. But we play dumb. I don't get it. No, he, he's been clear. He said it. It's not that we don't get it. It's that we don't want it. Listen, church, it's... It's a difficult thing to look at this, but the reality is, is that the nations are in rebellion against the king and rule of Jesus. They, we don't want him to rule. The question for us then becomes, are we personally and individually in rebellion against King Jesus, or do we want him to rule our lives? Are we as a church in submission to the rule of Jesus as a church, are we constantly asking, what does Jesus want? Or are we constantly asking about the church? What do we want? Listen, the churches, the churches are constantly battle about preferences and things like this. And very rarely are we in a fight about what Jesus wants. He's been clear. He says he wants us to love each other. He says he wants us to worship him and love his word. He says he wants us to make disciples. He says he wants us to serve our neighbors and advance the gospel to every man, woman, and child in every nation and every generation. He's, it's real clear. He may not have told us exactly how, but he's told us what to do. The problem is not that he wasn't clear about it. The problem is we have our own agendas. We have a different rule that we're trying to submit to. Our own. Listen, if there's any place that Jesus should rule on the throne, it's in his church. Now, now that's not all that the psalm has to say because he, here's the question that not just are we in submission, the question is why do the nations want to rebel against the rule of Jesus? You, you get a hint at it in verse 3 there. It says this, Let us burst their bonds apart 
and cast away their cords or their ropes from us. It paints this picture of, hey, we're literally, we feel like slaves. This feels like oppression. He's got chains on us. We're tied up in ropes. It's too too confining and restricting. The, The issue that the nations have against the rule of God is that his rule feels like oppression. Let me say that again. The the issue, the heart that that this guy sees here in the nations is that the rule of God feels oppressive. Is it? I understand why they would think that. Well, I mean, why would people say that the rule and the, the kingship of God and Jesus feels oppressive? Let me tell you why it feels oppressive or why it can. He feels like he has the right to tell you what to do about everything. He has no problem telling you who you can have sex with. He has no problem telling you who you can love and what you shouldn't love. He has no problem telling you how you should feel about him. He has no problem telling you how to spend your money. As a matter of fact, he has no problem telling you it's actually his money that he's having you manage. He has no problem telling you how to raise your kids, how to do marriage. There's no problem telling us all these things that touch every aspect of our life. That's why it feels oppressive. Because it touches everything. There's nothing that's outside of his rule that he feels like, ooh, I can't tell them what to do there. But here's the question. Not just is it, does it feel oppressive. The question is, I know he makes huge demands. Is it actually oppressive? I'm going to suggest to you, I don't think his rule is oppressive. I'm I'm only going to give you two reasons why. First of all, if his commands and rules are actually good for me, then it's not really oppressive. Let me give you an example. And this is a small example. But let me tell you, at my house, uh, not all the time, but I make my kids eat fruits and vegetables. Listen, broccoli, broccoli at dinner, goodness. Like, so I'm like, why do we keep doing this? Why do we keep putting broccoli on the table? But, but we do. We could very easily put French fries and chicken nuggets every day, all day, right? I'm going to give you Coke, French fries, and chicken nuggets. You know what? Forget it. We're just going to do ice cream. We're going to do ice cream for dinner because that's apparently what you get to do as a parent. Listen, if that's what I did, if, if I gave my kids what they wanted to eat every single time and only what they wanted to eat, I would not be being a good father and it probably feels oppressive to my kids when I say, listen, you're going to eat your broccoli, at least a bite of it. You can't make me eat my broccoli. Like there's the tears and the gagging that happens. Like the gagging is sometimes like, listen, I'm eating the same thing. I know what this tastes like. It's not that bad. It's actually really good. And then some days they love broccoli. And then Tuesday, they hate broccoli. They've never loved broccoli. They will never, ever love broccoli. It's the worst. Why are you so mean? Right? Apparently, some of y'all have kids. You know this, right? Yes. Uh, Like, the laughter is basically an amen here. This is great. Like, why? Why are you so mean? Why are you so... It probably feels really, really oppressive at times to my kids that I don't let them have French fries all the time. But my rule is intended to be good for them. I would not be a good father and Jesus would not be a good king 
if his rules were not good for us and he let us go off the rails. Secondly, it's not just that his commands and rules are good for us. What if his commands actually protect us from harming ourselves and harming others? Like, what if that's true? Like, right, we would not find a king good who was lenient on rape. We'd be like, listen, you can't be lenient on that thing. You see what they've done to someone else? You can't be lenient. You're a really bad king if you get rid of that law. That law is there to protect people from being harmed and hurt by others. Listen, you're a lousy king if you go lenient on that law, right? But, but what if? I need you to think of a different perspective on this that might not be natural for us. What if his laws about sex are actually really that good for us? I mean, what if? What if his law to only have sex with your spouse and not have sex with anyone else before marriage? What if that law is actually really good and it keeps you from hurting yourself and hurting other people? What if those laws that feel oppressive are actually really good for us? Like, listen, I had this conversation with him. I don't remember if I shared this with you or not, but um, I was in one of the big box stores. I can't remember if it was Home Depot or Lowe's. Um, and I forget what I was shopping for, but I'm there and I've got these two employees. They're standing next to me having this conversation. It's this man and this woman. And this guy's about to get engaged. And the woman that's an employee is like, why would you ever do that? Like that sounds, that sounds awful. Like there's no freedom in that. This sounds like the worst thing ever. And so I'm just sitting there like, oh man, this conversation is phenomenal. Like, I don't know. I don't even know. It was just so shocking. I'm just hearing it go back and forth. So then they ask me, I don't know why you would ask me. I don't, I guess I have a face of, hey, ask me. Or maybe I had a like, okay, this is what we're going. So I think she thought I was going to be on her side. She's like, you married? I'm like, yes, I'm married. I've been married for 10 years. I got four kids. And she was like, see, tell him this is a bad idea, right? Uh, I was like, no, no, listen, I'm not saying it's easy. Like, actually, I'm a pastor. And that totally changed the combo. Like, oh, no, danger, danger. Like, you could just see the panic in the eyes. I'm a pastor. I love marriage. I'm not saying it's easy at all, but it's worth it. And, and then I began to have this conversation about why it was better. Like, and part of her combo was I have to have sex with the same person for the rest of my life. I'm like, I think you're totally missing the point of this. Let me, and so I began to lay out a picture. I want you to, I said, I want you to imagine this. Imagine that the only person that you ever have sex with is your spouse. That's the only person. And imagine the freedom of what you probably experience right now that if you don't have sex with your boyfriend, he's going to leave you. Imagine the freedom of not having to perform in a certain way because you don't measure up to the people he's been with before or that lady that might come along next. It's not that you just have to have sex to keep him. You have to have a certain type of sex. Imagine the freedom that you get, this thing that feels like prison to you, is unbelievably freeing. Because if my wife has a headache or I don't feel good, we're not having sex to keep the other person. Do you see how that could be freedom? I, and for her, I don't think anyone ever talked to her like that. It was a shock to her system. She's like, do you, that can really happen? I'm like, yeah, that can really happen. That's what, that's what marriage is supposed to be. That was God's plan. You're not supposed to do it out of duty and obligation and fear. 
it's a controlling thing that you think is so enjoyable that some guy is using to control you and make you perform. And Jesus offers freedom from that. You see, his rule might not be oppressive. It might bring you more happiness and more freedom and more joy than you've ever known. Listen, if it's true, if his rules are not only there for our good, but his rules are there to protect us from harming ourselves and harming other people, then no matter how against the grain those rules feel, they're not oppressive. Listen, the church, I think it's a phenomenal thing when we think about that. The reason that his rules feel oppressive is because we doubt his love and we doubt his wisdom. We don't think he really loves us and we don't think he really knows what's best. And it feels oppressive for that reason. Not because the rules are oppressive, because we don't trust him. So the psalmist is looking at this and he sees these nations rebelling. And so here's the question. How's a king going to respond to a bunch of nations who are rebelling against him? I mean, it seems insane, right? Like even in verse one, the psalmist starts with, why? Why would you do this? Like, just think for a moment about the stupidity of this. There's a God and he literally keeps your heart beating. He keeps your lungs working. He holds your cells together. He didn't know cells, but he knew heart and breathing, right? He, he knows that he holds you together. He knows your intentions and all the things that you think in the room when no one else is around. And you want to rebel against him? Just doesn't matter how big your army is. He just goes, I don't want to keep his heart beating. Boom, done. Victory, right? Like, this isn't hard. Oh, they're going to they're gonna sneak from behind. It's okay. I, they've been playing this for like three weeks. I don't know, I know, but I know. So like, they're going that way. Like, it doesn't matter what little move you move. He's always not just one step ahead. He's all the steps ahead of you. And you want to rebel against him? So he asked this reason why. And now I need to warn you, as we look at God's response, <laughs> it's a little shocking. All right? Uh, it shocked me. It always shocks me. Verse four, he says this, he who sits in heaven laughs. Just, he laughs. He even says this, that the Lord derision. He, he mocks them. Now listen, he sees these people with all their strength and all their might and all their wisdom and all their plans. And they're saying, we're going to team up. And we're not going to put up with this oppressive rule anymore. And, he doesn't even get up out of his chair. He just, he's like, oh, oh okay. Uh, that's awesome. You're going to fight me. All right, this is, this is a great plan. I'm really impressed with your armies and your wisdom and your crafty little devious scheme. Like, uh, like I'm, I, this is awesome, guys. Nice move. Really genius plan. Like, he mocks them. And I got to be honest, it's pretty stupid when you think about it. If you really want to go to war with God, you really need to think through this, right? He, he laughs at them. Verse 5, but is it just laugh? He, he moves from that to, well, to being a little scary because he stops laughing. And this is the moment where the thing that I picture is he's not sitting back in his chair anymore just laughing. He leans forward. And he says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So now he laughs and then he gets angry. He's like, oh, you, you want to go? 
Let me be real clear here about who's in charge. He, he makes this statement. He says this, as for me, I know you got a plan about how you want to rule, but I've already set my king on Zion. I've already picked a king. His name is Jesus. He's going to rule. I didn't ask your permission to set him up as king. I didn't take a vote because I'm in charge. Okay. That's that moment, you know, like things are all fun and games and you think you're playing with dad until dad says, I'm not playing anymore. Right. And you're like, oh, snap. Uh, maybe you didn't say, oh, snap. I don't know what you did, but I don't Okay, I was a youth pastor when Oh Snap was in, and we used to go, Oh Snap. I don't know why we always did that, but I started to do it and stopped. Then I brought it back for you. So, Oh Snap, Dad is angry. That's basically what happens. Verse 7, he keeps going. He says, I already set up a king. It's not up for debate. You're not in charge. I didn't ask your permission or your perspective on it. And here's what I told him. He tells him about the decree. The Lord said to me, you're my son. Today I've begotten you. Like I'm, He's my son. He says, ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage. You, you know what you get? You get all the nations and the ends of the earth. If the nations aren't enough, you get every piece of land. You own all the earth, all of it. The ends of the earth are going to be your possession. And he says this, you shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a rule is going to be firm and strong. And if they want to try to wiggle out of it, they can't because you've got a rod of iron that all they are is pottery. There is no option for submitting to his rule. Wow. I see this response, laughing, mockery, anger, firmness, a rod of iron on pottery. Should I be concerned about that? Should should that cause a problem for me? Doesn't it feel kind of mean? Like, what about love, right? This is church. We've been talking about grace and love for like two years now. And now he's big and he's mean and he's scary and he's kind of harsh. Anyone else thinking that? Or am I the only one? Oh, wait, don't raise your hand. It's a judgy zone. We don't want to do that in church. Okay, if you're not thinking it, I was thinking it as I read it. Then I ask myself this question. And I know it seems harsh, but, but you need to think about this. I want you to think about what does it look like if there's actually a really good and strong king who's over a kingdom and he loves his people and he cares for his people and he does what's best for his people and then a rebellion breaks out in his kingdom. It's a weak and puny rebellion. He can easily end it. And this rebellion is hurting his people. They're hurting each other and they're harming one another and things are falling into chaos. Like they're not safe, they're not secure. It's, it's just completely oppressive and this rebellion is spreading, but he can easily stop it. How would a good king interact with that? Let me tell you how a good king would interact. No, no, we're not doing that in my kingdom. Get the people ready. Get the army ready. We're stopping this. They don't get to hurt my people. Right? He, he would probably sound real similar to this. They want to fight me? No. I've already put someone in charge of that area. I've already decided. And you're not going to do this in my kingdom because it's not good for everyone. I'm coming and I'm going to handle this. That's exactly how a good king would interact. 
right? Let me ask, like as a parent, you're on the playground and you see a little punk kid getting after your kid. He's not a little, he's bigger than your kid and he's wailing on your child. Are you going to go, man, I don't want to be harsh. I guess my kid will figure it out. No, that's not what you're going to do. You're going to move quickly. You're probably going to, hey, get off him, right? Is that, okay, good. I just want to make sure we got a room full of parents that would say, I'm not going to let someone beat the snot out of my kid on the playground for no reason whatsoever, right? It doesn't matter how big they, it doesn't matter if that bully is bigger than you. Listen, listen, it can be, if I see another dad and he's 6'5", 430 pounds or however big this dude is, and I see him smack my kid on the playground, Lord have mercy. I may get whooped, but I'm coming in with everything I got, right? Because I'm a good dad. Well, I hope I'm a good dad, Right? Like, I'm coming in, bro. My wife's calling 911. I just need to, I need to take a beating until the cops get there. That's all I've got to do, right? Because I'm a dad. It's not going to be quiet. Listen, in, for someone to sit there and go, you were really harsh to that guy when he smacked your kid. Does, does that work for y'all? Because it doesn't work for me. Listen, He's a good king with a good rule. There's a rebellion happening. So when he sounds firm and strong, it's because he's actually in charge and the rebellion is actually really, really bad. Don't let everyone else redefine that for you. We minimize it. It's not really a rebellion. No, it's really a rebellion. We really are rebels. But before I get to him, let me, let me remind you how this king actually really interacted. I'm gonna, this is basically the good news. It's the gospel. It's the New Testament. That king saw rebellion happening that was bad for his people. So he sent his son as an envoy to ask for peace. He said, listen, I'm going to send my son. He's the ruler. He's going to go to these, this little rebellion that's happening. He said, listen, I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you a chance to... Repent of this rebellion and come back underneath my rule. You know what we did? We killed the son. So what's the king going to do? He's going to grab his army. He's going to load them up and he's going to start coming. But you know what else the good news is? Is that he's sending, he sent an envoy, which is the church, which is us, to the people that are still in rebellion. He's saying, listen, the king is coming. He's not going to tolerate the rebellion. We killed his son, but he has an offer. If you'll repent and ask him to help, if you'll leave the rebellion and come to his side, he says he's going to forgive you of the rebellion. And he's not just going to do that. He's going to adopt you into the royal family. And he's not just going to do that. He's being in a process to fix what's broken in us that caused the rebellion to begin with. Listen, that's the offer of the gospel. That's why God sent his son. He didn't just send an army to wipe us all out when we were in a puny rebellion. He said, listen, I'm sending my son. And he died. And I'm still offering this forgiveness for you and adoption into the family. And I will fix everything that's broken in you. But you got to leave the rebellion and come to my side. And you better do it before I get there. The rest of the verse gives some wisdom to people who are rebelling against the, the, the rule of Jesus. It says this in verse 10. 
Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Don't be stupid. (sighs) Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Just, hey, can you just not rebel and obey him? He's not small and puny. Don't be stupid. He also says this, and rejoice with trembling. That word rejoice is an interesting word. It means to circle up with happiness. So you're trying to figure out what does it mean by circle up? Let me paint the picture for you. It's that moment that you're in this basketball game and the star of the team shoots and scores a winning point as the buzzer goes off and, and you go up by one and everyone goes and circles around that dude and they're jumping up and they're like, yes, we won. Like it's March Madness all over again. You hoist the, the team captain up on your shoulders and you march off the court in victory. It's rejoicing in a circle. It's, it's the king that just got victory and all of his army circles around on the battleground like screaming like freedom or whatever Braveheart did in that movie. It's circling around the king in victory saying, this is awesome, we won. Like, you're great. Your rule is solidified and finalized and all the torment and the suffering and the evil is vanquished. That's what he means. So listen, don't rebel. Like, just circle around King Jesus and celebrate him being king. Celebrate his victory. It's, it's, it's worship. One of the ways that we respond is we serve him and we worship him. But, but there's more. Verse 12, kiss the son. That's repentance. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's a warning in this that says the king's got his army and he's on his way. And listen, you better repent and join his side before he gets here. So I want to ask, have you personally come to a point in your life where you've repented and placed your trust in Jesus? You've done with your rebellion. You want Jesus to be your king and you need all the help that he can give you. Listen, we're all in process and we have these moments. But if you've never done it, I want to call you today. Don't leave here today without placing your trust in Jesus. I I get nervous about this passage because I don't want to manipulate you and scare you. But I don't want to lessen the warning of a coming king and a rebellion that's really happening. I don't want to manipulate you into trusting him, but I want you to know the reality of where we stand. We stand as rebels condemned. And he stands as a merciful king that offers forgiveness if you'll repent and place your trust in Jesus. But if we won't, the time for repent is not forever. One day the time to answer shows up and there'll be no place to hide if you haven't repented beforehand. I can't minimize that for you. And I want to manipulate you, but but you need to wrestle with this. The other thing is not just for those who've never repented. It's for us as a people. Do we really worship and love Jesus and rejoice in a circle around him because we're so happy of what he's done for us? Like, do you still stand in awe of the mercy he showed us as rebels? Do you still long for him to set up shop and rule? Or better yet, are we actively engaged making sure our fellow rebels are hearing the good news and the call 
to repent and come to Jesus as Savior instead of judge? Listen, if he's coming and there really is a judgment, inactivity in the mission is unacceptable. It's 100% completely not okay. He sent us as ambassadors before he comes with the army. And we don't get to sit on our, in our houses by ourselves, isolated, sipping lattes. I don't know how you do that in your house, but whatever is It's not intended to be easy and comfortable. It's intended to be loving and clear and true to rescue all those who want to be rescued. And we can't do that just huddled up in this room. We must be engaged in the mission of loving people who are far from God. So this place should not be full of a bunch of clean people is what I'm saying. It should feel a little uncomfortable. We should be a people that are going out to the most uncomfortable, broken people in the city of Tallahassee with love, mercy, and truth. That's who the church is supposed to be because that's what he he called us to be. Church, the call today is if you've never trusted in Jesus, would you do that? Would you worship him for being a merciful savior? And, And will you engage the mission? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? So I'm going to give you a time to respond. But listen, I want to give you a moment just to ask yourself the question. Have I ever repented of my sin and placed my trust in the work of Jesus on the cross? Listen, if you haven't, there's not a lot of fanfare to it. You don't need to walk an aisle. You don't need to be good. You don't need to get baptized. You just need to right there in your seat, ask him to save you. Just saying, Jesus, I'm glad you died in my place. I'm glad you came back to life three days later. And I'm asking you, forgive me of my sin and my rebellion and let me join you. Like, make me your son. And he promises, if you will just do that, you don't have to work for it. He promises he'll save you and clean you and adopt you and start working on you. It's what he did for me. Let me also ask you, for some of you here, would you just spend a moment just standing in awe of the mercy of King Jesus? Would you worship him there in your seat for being merciful? Would you spend a moment standing in awe of his strength? Would you worship him for being king and strong? Listen, if you've thought that he's harsh, I want to call you to repent and see his kindness in it. Finally, would you ask him how to, sh- to show you how to engage the mission of calling other rebels to, to repent and join him? Don't be arrogant about that. Just ask him to show you. Think about where you live in your neighborhood. Is there anyone in your neighborhood that he would have you try to find a way to engage, even in COVID? I want you to think about uh, your work. Wherever you work, is there anyone at your workplace, as tricky as that can be, that God is calling you to engage in with wisdom and love? I'm not telling you to go 
jump down a throat, but is there someone he's calling you to engage in for the mission, for their good? Think about the places you go to have fun, maybe your hobbies or t-ball with your kids. Is there anyone there that he's calling you to engage? It's not, pray that he would give you wisdom and clarity about who to engage and how to engage well with the gospel. Heavenly Father, God, we admit that the thought of you coming back with an army is kind of scary. Not just kind of scary, it's very scary. But God, we believe you're good, that your rule is what's best for us. It's not oppressive, it's, it's loving. God, we believe that you're strong as you should be. God, I pray you'd protect our hearts from doubting that. I pray we would be a people that would love your rule. God, I pray that we'd be a people that would love your mercy that you've shown us. And God, I pray that we'd be a people that would take that good news to all those around us. God, show us how to be faithful ambassadors to our our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends so that they can see and hear the good news of Jesus. God, I pray we would love it. And I pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.